in denominationalism and even the Lord's church, you, if you take a scripture out of context and then try to apply a scripture um, to make or form a doctrine, uh, you're going to have a problem with that. And that's why we have so many different beliefs. When someone says, well, why can't we all understand the Bible alike? And when the Bible tells us to, and it's because we have a lot of preconceived ideas. I mean, God wouldn't tell us to do something to all agree if we couldn't all agree, right? So we can all agree, but we have to look at the Bible in the right way. I think there's about nine, there are nine or 11 different um, types of interpretations of the Bible, and that's the problem. There's just so many of them, and uh, maybe I'll, I'll get those and bring those in our next lesson. Uh, anyway, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 20. But know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy has, uh, was ever made by the act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. So the Bible, God didn't write it to be a, a, a mystical book, right? Although the book of Revelation is, I know there's apocalyptic literature um, that had a purpose, though. And that's the reason it was written in that way, because of the Roman persecution and persecutions in the past. But the Bible's written for us to understand at least one thing in particular. We begin with this, this foundation, salvation. Everybody can get salvation and understand it, but you have to want the truth, right? And not proof text. Um, I want to go to Luke chapter, chapter 1. Not proof text, uh, to grab one text and say, this is what I believe, and here's why I believe it, uh, and, and take it out of context. You just, just can't, I see that all the time uh, in, in Bible studies. So when you think of how to understand and how to explain the scriptures, we think about two things. Number one, the environment of the author. You know, what, was it, what kind of life were, were they living? Were they living in, in, um, in houses that were mansions or were they living in, in tents? Or were they living in, in you know, what, what type of housing were they living in? What type of government uh, was there? What was their community like? What, you know, what were they talking about when they were saying certain things in certain ways? And, and that's important when we're trying to understand the context. What was the time period, the era in which this, uh, this text was, was written? What were the circumstances surrounding maybe this particular book? And what was the author's like kind of personality too? And that's also important because you see that coming out of what's being written. So Luke, you know, being a doctor, right? He begins his writings in a scholarly way. All of them. He acts, we'll look at Acts in a moment. And, and uh, Luke chapter 1, look at verse 1. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you might know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. And then you continue reading, and he goes right to the common man's language. <laughs> it's interesting when you look at the way he writes, and he opens up, and then you just, you just start reading the book of Luke, and then it just, it just turns into um, something that everybody can understand. But something about this Theophilus that uh, was, was, it was critical 
for him to open up this letter or this book in this way. Turn to the book of Acts. When you read the book of Acts, he starts saying, you know, we did this and then they did, you know, they did that. And we, but he opens up in a way that the common man, uh, rather, he opens up in a scholarly way. And then he writes the rest of his book in a way the common man would understand it with, with clarity. Right? Um, verse 1. The, the first account oh, I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up and after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. To these he also pre, uh, presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard from me. And then he goes on quoting what uh, the Bible says. And then he just goes right into the common man's language, right? And he starts reading the rest of the book of Acts, and it's like no one, no one wonders what he's saying. You understand with clarity what exactly uh, the message that Luke is trying to convey to the rest. First Corinthians chapter seven. First Corinthians chapter seven, and there are no arguments about the first four verses of, of Luke, nor the first four verses of of Acts, unless someone wants to try to you know explain who Theophilus is, and you know, I don't know who that gentleman was, but he was important. So First Corinthians seven, you know, it's, you get into this marriage chapter, right? And it's, you know, it's, oh, it gets it gets kind of confusing in it. Starts here. It starts out with this good for a man not to touch a woman, and then it's better to marry than to burn. And then if your wife leaves you, then you know, uh, you know, try to get her to stay, but if she doesn't stay, let her go. And vice versa with the man. And then he gets all the way over to verse twenty-five, and it, and it sounds like he's trying to rescue us from from marriage, right? Verse twenty-five, unless you understand the context, right? Verse twenty-five. Now concerning virgins, I have no command of the Lord, but I give an opinion. As one who, by the mercies of the Lord, is trustworthy. I think then that it is good, in view of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be released. Are you released from a a wife? Do not seek a wife. But if you should marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin should marry, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. Dodge a bullet, right? If you get married, you're going to have trouble. Well, that's not really what he's saying, is it? Contextually, he's saying to stay single if you're not married because the abomination of desolation is about to come. And God instructed the the Christians, when you see the army surround Jerusalem, don't go back into your house to get your, your purse or your whatever, right? Well, who might be in your house? Your wife. So now you've got to come off the roof, run inside, get your wife, get the children, and then run toward the mountains. You might not make it. I mean, they did. But the point was, he was talking about a specific situation and circumstance of his day. So you keep it in its context. You, you won't fall into the trap of hearing all the denominational preaching about why you should get married or shouldn't get married. And all the, mixed, all the things that are just mixed up because they're grabbing the, t- the text and they're taking it out of context, right? So that's what Satan does. Turn to Matthew, please. Chapter 4. That's exactly the way Satan confuses us. He takes a text or gives us a text, and he takes it 
out of context. And as, as we're, you know, if we were speaking to, to Satan today and we were asking him about, about, you know, Genesis chapter 3, and we say, well, Satan, you know, you, you told Eve that she would not surely die, but, but God said that she would surely die. And then Satan said, well, I just gave her more information. It was true, but it was wrong. So watch what he does with Jesus. This is one of the, when we get to, uh, we're not going to do this tonight, but I'm going to bring a lesson eventually on like Satan's schemes, like his tricks. We're going to look in the Old Testament and look at, kind of pick out um, the, the way, things he did to people. Like in the book of Nehemiah and, and other places in the, in the Bible. He took the Bible and he takes the Bible. He uses a scripture, but the scripture he uses he uses it in a way that he takes it out of context, right? It's in the Bible, but it's in the wrong context. So with Jesus, as Jesus was tempted, and this is why it's so important to know your Bibles. Look at verse 5, Matthew chapter 4. The devil took him into the holy city, and he had him stand on the pinnacle of the temple, and said to him, If you are the Son of God, Throw yourself down, for it is written. He will give his angels charge concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Now, that's Bible, right? Uh, let's go look at it in Psalm 91. That, that's book, chapter, and verse, right? Uh, and so you, you, you can hear a great sermon from Somewhere and it, it may be book, chapter, and verse, but if it's out of context, uh, it, it could cost you your soul, right? And, and we'll hear that. We'll hear Romans ten, nine, and ten. That's book, chapter, and verse. But if you take it out of context, right? You, you grab a, a wrong application to the text. We got a problem. So here's a wrong application to this text. Okay, Psalm ninety-one, verse eleven and verse twelve. For he will give his angels charge concerning you to guard you in all your ways. They will bear you up in their hands, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Book, chapter, and verse. Right? Satan knows his book, doesn't he? I'm not going to say he knows it backwards and forwards, but I'm going to say he knows it better than a lot of Christians do. We don't take the time to really read it, to understand it. Now, what makes this verse, then, a verse that is not applicable to the moment that he's speaking to Jesus about? Well, what does Jesus say? Go back to Matthew, uh, if you will. No, in fact, Deuteronomy. Let's go grab this, what Jesus said in Deuteronomy. Jesus used a scripture that you say, well, wait a minute, Deuteronomy 6? Um, how, how does that scripture combat Psalm 91? Deuteronomy 6 and verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test as you tested him at Masa. Okay. So now we go back. Now we go back to Matthew chapter 4. Was this just a cop-out that Jesus used because, you know, Satan gave him book, chapter, and verse? Was it just, I mean, why would Jesus use this particular verse? Well, because what Jesus had to say had, not only did it have the, the power to refute the doctrine that Satan was trying to apply to Psalm 61, but what Jesus is, or 91 rather, what Jesus is bringing to them is the proper application 
to that verse. Right? So, Jesus in verse 7 of Matthew chapter 4, Jesus says, On the other hand, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Alright, so watch this. Let's think about how that looks. So Jesus says to the apostles, um, You'll be able to um, drink deadly poison, and if you do, nothing's going to hurt you. So you decide to go home, <laughs> and you're going to do... They're going to show, hey, I want you to know something. Jesus said I could drink deadly poison. I want to show you that I can drink deadly poison and it's not going to harm me because Jesus said I had this power. And then you drink the deadly poison and you fall over dead. Because it's out of context, right? He's he's talking about this particular miracle, this miraculous gift of of the serpents biting you, etc., etc., was used to oppose Satan, Right? So the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit, were never to be used for your personal, you know, I guess, um, um, blessings to the world, but rather to be used to bring glory and honor to God. Now, Jesus says, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. So yes, without a shadow of a doubt, Psalm 91 in its proper context was stating that, yeah, God would certainly protect you uh, and ensure that you not dash your foot against the stone. yes without a shadow of a doubt, but you're not to jump off the mountain, right, (laughs) just to prove God or test God. So Satan took it out of context. And you have to know the scriptures to know which scripture then, looking at the holistic context, right? Psalm 91 must be in harmony with Deuteronomy chapter 6. If it's out of context, it just doesn't work. It doesn't fit. And so when we're looking at a, a, a doctrine in the New Testament, we have to make sure that we understand the foundation that God gave us in the Old Testament, right? We grab the foundation, though there's no authority, in the Old Testament to follow, uh, if you will, if you're saying, okay, do we do this or we do that? You always listen to what the New Testament says, but the foundation is almost always in the Old Testament. So you take the Old Testament and the New Testament and they have to fuse themselves together, right? They have to. If they don't, then you have a problem. So here's what Jesus does. The Old, the New Testament looks at the Old Testament and elevates it. It brings it to a spiritual level, to God's original intention behind the thought. So in the Old Testament, uh, he talks about the bread. You know, the bread of life, you rain down bread from heaven. But what was the actual spiritual application to that? That was Jesus, right? The whole point. Everything in the Old Testament has to rise to meet the New Testament teaching. But what we have to do is not make up something new, but find the New Testament application to the Old Testament knowledge that God has given to us. That way we have a deeper understanding of what the Bible is trying to say to us. We have to be able to to dig in the scriptures to find the truth. Like, for example, um, we had this conversation just the other day. Show me a New Testament scripture about giving, meaning on the first day of the week. Well, you're going to be in trouble trying to find that one because it's not there, right? However, the Bible talks about giving all throughout the New Testament. But where do we get a good, deep understanding then? We go back to the Old Testament and carry it all the way through. What about using instruments of music in the worship? Where do we get, I mean, when you think about it, I know it says sing, 
But you've got to go a whole lot deeper than just saying, well, the Bible says saying. So we understand a direct command means if whenever God commands and everything else is excluded. And we could talk about that. But the world of denominationalism, they're not going to understand that. You have to go a whole lot deeper to help them to understand why we don't use instruments of music in the worship. And why it's not authorized. But you've got to go back to the beginning. Now, the example we have of that is Jesus, for example. When they came to Jesus and they asked him about, um, about you know, divorce in Matthew 19, where did he go? To the Old Testament. Right back to the beginning, didn't he? Back to the beginning, and then he brought them through. They said, well, Deuteronomy, you know, you find in the law, in the law, Moses commanded us to give her a certificate of divorce. Why? Right? And he goes right back to the text in the Old Testament, but then he brings it to the New Testament, and he elevates it. Right? The Ten Commandments. Do we follow the Ten Commandments? No, we don't follow the Ten Commandments, because they're Old Testament. Ah, well, that's the foundation. What did Jesus do? He brought all those commandments, all those commandments, into the New Testament, but he elevated them. He lifted them up. You know, for example, it was said, you've heard that it was said, you heard that it was said, but now I say, and he brought it to a different level, right? A spiritual level. A man would commit adultery. That's wrong. Jesus says, if you look at a woman you lust after her, you've already done that. It's elevated to a different level, a higher level. So everything in the Old Testament is like foundational teaching and, and, and doctrine. But it, the New Testament builds on it and elevates everything to where today we can see with clarity what God means and what God meant when he said what he said to the people. But it's got to be all within the context. And you can do that with every every idea, every understanding that we have in the New Testament. You can go back to the Old Testament to find the depth of what's being spoken of in the New Testament, right? So that's really, really critical in our understanding. Let's go back to the Old Testament. Let's go back to um, 2 Samuel chapter um, 18. Let's go look at um, David. Let me go back and look at David. Uh, David really, you know, he, there's this, this, this verse 31, this verse that is, you know, it stands out. And people didn't really quite understand everything about the verse. I'm not saying we don't, but they didn't quite understand. So let's know what it says in verse 31. And behold, the Cushite arrived, and the Cushite said, Let my lord the king receive good news, for the Lord has freed you this day from the hand of all those who rose up against you, Absalom in particular, right? Then the king said to the Cushite, It is well with the young man Absalom, or is it well, excuse me, with the man, young man Absalom? And the Cushite answered, Let the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise up against you for evil be as that young man. And the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And thus he said as he walked, Oh, my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, would I had died instead of you. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And in chapter 19, I mean, he's reproved. You know, Joab says, Hey, you know, it's, it's as if you, if we had died, you wouldn't have cared. But this, this boy of yours, is he's trying to kill all of us, and you're crying for him? Okay, so, this, this deep, deep lament of David. Why in the world is David so moved? And you would say, well, I mean, he's his son, right? So, of course, he would be moved. No, but this is a very deep, deep 
lament. I want to go back and take a look at a few things to try to understand, well, why in the world does Joab take this, this crying in this way, this lament in this way? Why is it so offensive to all the people? Right? Because it's not normal. Of course he should mourn over the loss of his son, but not like this. Well, let's go take a look. Back to 2 Samuel chapter 12. And this is just going to be a quick review because we need a review. Um, you know, there was Bathsheba, the sin with Bathsheba. And we're going to go all the way down to verse 7. Nathan said, then said to David, You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel. It is I who anointed you king over Israel, and it is I who delivered you from the hand of Saul. I also gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your care, and I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if that had been too little, I would have added to you many more things like these. Why have you despised the word of the Lord by doing evil in his sight? You have struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword, have taken his wife to be your wife, and have killed him with the sword of the sons of Ammon. Now therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house, because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your eyes before you, your eyes, and give them to your companion. And he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Indeed, you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel and under the sun. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, The Lord also has taken away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme the child also that is born to you shall surely die. So Nathan went to his house and the Lord struck the child that Uriah's widow bore to David so that he was very sick. All right. So now, we're going to leave the child for just a moment. I want to just grab Absalom. Go back to verse 10. Now therefore the sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Who's, who's a part of his household? Absalom, right? What I want you to get that we're going to, I'm going to emphasize uh, in a few more verses here. Everything Absalom does is because David sinned. Because David chose that woman and sinned against God instead of doing what he was supposed to do. Now, and here we go. Now, we've got to stop for a moment and say, okay, wait, wait, wait. So you're saying that God made him do No, we're not saying God made Absalom do this. Absalom, and you've seen the earlier text of Absalom, you see his heart, right? You see how much trouble he is and has been to Israel and to David up to this point. But God let Absalom have his way and remove the protection from David and his household and Absalom took over. And what's important is, had David just not done what he did, murdered Uriah the Hittite and taken Bathsheba in, in his lustful ways, Absalom, th this whole situation, him fleeing uh, from his own son and from the, his own kingdom, it wouldn't have even happened. It's all because of David. Now, I want you to think about that for just a moment. 
you do something, you're, you're, you're living your life in an evil way, and then God starts saying things about, about you that you did that's wrong, that you can't deny. And then God pronounces a punishment against you. And when that punishment happens, and it's your son who does it, how are you going to feel about that? You just murdered your son. Right? Let's keep going. Verse 11. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up evil against you from your own household. I will even take your wives before your eyes and give them to your companion, and he shall lie with your wives in broad daylight. Verse 12. Indeed, you did it secretly, but I will do this thing before all Israel under the sun. Look at chapter 13, verse uh, 28. And Absalom commanded his servants, saying, See now, when Ammon's heart is merry with wine, and when I say to you, Strike Amnon, then put him to death. Do not fear. And that I myself commanded you, be courageous and be valiant. And the servants of Absalom did to Amnon, just as Absalom had commanded. Then all the king's sons arose, and each mounted his mule and fled. Now we know Absalom did this in revenge, right, uh, for the sin of, of Amnon. But the point is, is that evil, God said, will never leave your house. And it, it doesn't. Look at chapter 15, and beginning at verse verse 7. Chapter 15 and verse 7. Here's the sword. The sword is at his house. It's not going to leave. Chapter 15 and verse 7. Now it came about at the end of 40 years that Absalom said to the king, Please let me go and pay my vow, which I have vowed to the Lord in Hebron. For your servant vowed a vow while I was living at Geshur. In Aram, saying, If the Lord shall indeed bring me back to Jerusalem, then I will serve the Lord. And the king said to go in peace. So he arose and went to Hebron. But Absalom sent spies throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, As soon as you hear the sound of the trumpet, then you shall say, Absalom is king in Hebron. Then two hundred men went with Absalom from Jerusalem, who were invited and went innocently, and they did not know anything. I want you to think for just a moment, right? Absalom may have had all of this in his heart to do this evil, this evil. God removed all of David's protection and just let Absalom have his own free way, right? And look at how easy it is when you're not being protected by God to take over a kingdom. I mean, it was a piece of cake. This was, this was so simple and so easy. If God had not intervened, he would have taken over. I mean, I know he did for just a, a stint of time, but it didn't last very long. But 200 men, so you have your innocent men who are there, who are innocently there, verse 11. Verse 12, And Absalom sent for Ahiathophel, the Gileonite, and David's counselor, from his, the city of Gilo. While he was offering the sacrifices and the conspiracy was strong, for the people increased continually with Absalom. Then a messenger came to David saying, The hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. How is that possible? How is David the king of Israel, right? Trusted man, you know. Saul has killed his hundreds, David, I mean his thousands, David his tens of thousands. The valiant warrior, the strong man, the great man David... 
How in the world can Absalom, because of his pretty hair, <laughs> he stood at the gate, he conspired. How could he win the hearts of the people so quickly? David, you, you blew it. God took your protection away. Look at the next verse, 14. And David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, for otherwise none of us shall escape from Absalom. Go in haste, lest he overtake us quickly and bring down calamity on us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. Wait a minute. Doesn't David have the mighty men? How is that? What is David kind of figuring out right now? Yeah. Remember your sin against Uriah? And your sin against Bathsheba? Now you're paying the price, right? He knows God's not going to protect him. God is not going to protect him, right? God's will will be done. So we continue reading. Verse 15. Then the king's servant said to, king, to the king, Behold, your servants are ready to do whatever my lord the king chooses. So the king went out and all his household with him. But the king left ten concubines to keep the house. What's going to happen next? <laughs> we already know, don't we? The prophecy of Nathan, he told us exactly what's going to happen next. Chapter 16, verse 20 through um, 22. Then Absalom said to Ahithophel, Give your advice. What shall we do? And Ahithophel said to Absalom, Go into your father's concubines, whom he has left to keep the house, then all Israel will hear that you have made yourself odious to your father. The hands of all who are with you will also be strengthened. So they pitched a tent for Absalom on the roof, and Absalom went into his father's concubines in the sight of all Israel. Why did that happen? Right? Everything that's happening is because of the sins of the father. Right? These are consequences. Consequences. Consequences are tough, especially when you know they came from God. So now in chapter 18 and verse 14, uh, you know, now the, the war has uh, begun. Then Joab said, I will not waste time here with you. So he took three spears in his hand and thrust them through the heart of Absalom while he was yet alive in the midst of the oak. Why is the boy dead now? With three arrows in his heart. Or spears. Because of his father. So when you, when you and I, when we think about life and something that we're going to do because we can, right? We, maybe we have the power to do it uh, in our own minds. Um, we have the desire to do it and, it. and we're only thinking about ourselves. Watch out. Because the consequence may be on your family, right? Consequences of sin happens all the time. We see it all the time, don't we? All of the time we see it. Father gets behind the wheel. But before he gets behind the wheel, has a few beers or some marijuana or something and drives his car. And people die, right? Consequences of a father. We have to be really careful what we do. And what we say, it's important, right? It, it's critical. We're going to Matthew in just a moment um, because we're, we're talking about context, 
right? Context is critical. So you can go back and read all of Second Samuel now, chapter 12, and read through and, and get the, um, the, you know, you'll get a whole lot more meat out of that now when you go back and study it. And I'm, I'm not telling you things you don't already know, but, but you'll get more meat out of it now when you go back and you study that. Um, hopefully I steered up something there. Okay, Matthew 18. Here's the, one of those scriptures that, you know, kind of the, the goats have heard this often um, about camping. And now I'm going to step on the toes here. You, 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 may, you know, you've heard people say, well, you know, the reason why I'm not going, I'm not uh, forsaking the assembly it is because where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst. So we can just have worship out in the woods from this point forward and be just fine, though we're members of the, well, that's, I mean, that's, that's the way the verse is used. But that's not what the verse is saying. Uh, Matthew 18 and verse 20. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And I've heard that, not just with camping, but I've heard it with, you know, fishing. <laughs> you know, everything you can imagine. I've heard it in so many ways. As long as two of us are together, we're okay. We're not, we're not forsaking the assembly. That's not what that verse is saying. Right? That's not what that verse is saying. All of Matthew 18 is about stumbling blocks and it's about dealing with problems between people, brethren, or uh, each other. And as you read that, you, you think about, if you try to make that application in Matthew 18, you remove from it what it actually is saying and you actually bring another false doctrine in. Because here's the implication. The implication is, watch how you can build a sermon, a false sermon, out of that thought. Where two or three are gathered together, there God is in their midst. That's why when Daniel was in the lion's den, God wasn't with him. But you turn back three chapters and you find Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fire pit, and God was there. Because two or three were gathered together in his name. I mean, right? I mean, maybe that sounds silly, but why do you think we have so many denominations in the world today? Because so many preachers take it out. It sounds great. They just take it out of context. Well, we do it too. That verse has nothing to do with two or three gathering together to go and do something that they choose or we would like to be able to do. That verse is dealing specifically. And by the way, it also takes away then, what about the widow? Is God never with the widow now because two or three have to be gathered together? You, you see, I mean, the implication, the whole teaching is, is just, it's off and it's, it's wrong. So, so the actual verse deals with, you know, what do I do in the midst of conflict? How do we, how do we solve our, our problems in, in conflict? So the, the greater context of Matthew 18 is about judgment. So we're going to make a judgment call. So how are we going to do this properly? According to the law of Moses and then carried over into the New Testament, you've got to have some witnesses with you, right? And so that's what he's talking about. Bring some folks with you, right? In, in Matthew chapter 18, when you've got a disagreement with someone, bring some other people with you, some neutral folks, some, you know, whatever, some witnesses, etc. The passage is about how to deal with conflict. It's not just making a blanket statement about, about God's presence. Really important. And, I, and you, you'll hear that if you, if you listen, if you haven't heard it before, You'll hear it used in so many different ways, with so many terrible applications um, that it it really drives a wedge in in reality um, to to faithfulness. So, as you read through the New Testament, the Bible too 
The Bible is not full of um, thou shall not. You think about how thick the book would be if God said, okay, you cannot do this. And you can, I mean, it would be, it, it would be, a, it's, but it's not. It's full of principles, right? And, and so, just like when you look at the, the Noah's Ark, Noah didn't have to bring every animal on the ark. He brought every animal of its kind on the ark, right? He brought the species line on the ark. piece of cake. Not even an issue. The specific is what is also important, but you've got to find the principle first. So when I mentioned uh, quite a few Bible classes ago that the Bible, this thread that goes from the Old Testament to the New Testament, those are all the principles. They're all through the Scriptures. Everything you can imagine or think of or think about or everything you've heard in your life, it, it's in here. It's in here in principle. In one way or another. It's there. You just have to dig for it. Now, the specific would be like, um, what goes up must come down. So the principle is, you know, speaks of gravity. What goes up must come down. And then the specific, well, you know, a dog goes up, a dog comes down. A rock goes up, a rock comes, you know, right? All right. So, I wanted to end context tonight. Um, And I want you to remember that when you're studying with someone, if they're, if you're trying to understand a verse, let's, let's begin with you're studying on your own and you don't really understand what's being said, go backwards about five verses, right? And then pick it up again. And then read five more afterwards. If you still don't understand it, go back ten verses. And then come, you know, you just got to go back and read and get the context. So thank you for allowing me to to bore you tonight on this because it is, we've heard it, we know. But I want to just reiterate that to you um, tonight. So I'm finished. Class is ending early. Thank you for your your time. We will... um, leave off of context and get on to another subject and understanding and studying the Word of God. So thank you for your time tonight. Appreciate it.